0: Thank you, Cindy. Thank you so much. What a beautiful campground to enjoy here. My husband and I, after my presentation yesterday, we took a little walk down amongst the roses, the rose walk. So pretty. Even though it was raining, we had an umbrella and we were stopping and looking at the beauty of the roses and just enjoying it. So it's a privilege for you to have such a special and pretty place to come to worship the Lord together for a whole week. Well, I want to just give you a very brief um, overview of tomorrow's subject. Tomorrow, my title is Just Keep Walking. How many of you have ever felt discouraged? I have. (laughs) So tomorrow we're going to talk about what it takes to just keep going. I have a story from India. I'm going to begin taking you to India, and the the, uh, how we started Hope Channel in India. It's an amazing story, a story filled with miracles. I want to share that with you. And I also want to share with you um, a new concept. I'm calling it the Great Brain Controversy. We're talking about the Great Controversy this week, and so I've entitled this the Great Brain Controversy. So I'll unpack that tomorrow uh, for you, the story of India, which is really inspiring. Uh, how to just keep going, keep walking. So I hope you'll join me and invite some of your friends to come along also. And then the following day, uh, on Thursday, we're going to talk about hope. Hope will not disappoint. What would our lives be without hope? And I have a story that I'm going to share with you from Angola that uh, happened when I was doing a production project in Angola. Another miraculous story where God intervened. And then Friday we're going to end on a high note in the book of Revelation, victory in Jesus on the winning team. So I hope you'll join me for the rest of the week. I hope it'll be a blessing and an inspiration to you. But today we want to talk about the God of the impossible and the Ten Commandments or the Ten Principles of Forgiveness. Now yesterday we talked about anger and forgiveness and the intersection of anger and forgiveness being what? Remember, the intersection of anger and forgiveness is choice. Yes, absolutely, choice. And so we're going to duck back to that just a little bit in this presentation, So, uh, but we're going to move on through this. So to begin with, I'm reminded of a story my husband tells. Now, when he was a little boy, maybe about five years old, um, his mother was busy teaching him... Um, Matthew chapter 5, you know, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, you know, you should turn the left cheek, and, and uh, she was going through with the principles and trying to teach him, you know, what to do and how to behave with other people, and so when she got done, she said now Bradley, what do you do when someone slaps you, and without even hesitating my husband said, you punch him right back <laughs> Well, sweetheart, I'm glad you've done some growing up since then. (laughs) So you punch him right back. I'm going to move this forward a little bit and see if I get a little less feedback, or maybe it's worse. Is it better if I stay back? Maybe back. Okay, we'll move this back just a little more. Hopefully that's better. So forgiveness is truly a gift that we can choose to give or to receive. And embedded in the prayer... Jesus taught his disciples, it's a powerful core concept of Christianity. Forgive us as we forgive those who, we for, that, who have sinned against us. Now, Reinold Niebuhr, he's an American Protestant theologian in the mid-20th century. He was very famous um, in writing and uh, participating in the concept of the Christian faith in the realities of war and politics. And one of his favorite quotes, he said, Forgiveness is the final form of love. Forgiveness is the final form of love. Indeed, the ultimate example of forgiveness is found in the example of Jesus, the life and death of Jesus Christ. In spite of the degradation of sin and humility, God loved so much that he sent his beloved son to give his life for us. The ultimate form of love. So what happens when your head tells you to forgive, but your heart tells you, I want justice. Have you ever been there? I'm willing to forgive. Yes, intellectually I know I should forgive, but my heart says I want revenge for the pain that I've suffered. I want to get even. So the human heart seeks justice, that's a natural human uh, emotion. Whether wrongs are done to us or legitimately, we legitimately have been hurt or we perceive to have been hurt, we want what's fair. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations that, we, that are grossly unfair and are indeed in deeply hurtful. One day Jesus had a teaching moment with his disciples. They were puzzling over the decision of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and asked, what do I need to do to be saved? And when Jesus told him, he went away sorrowfully. And the disciples said, you know, if if that's the case, how can, how is it even possible for anyone to be saved? And so Jesus responded to this question concerning the mystery of salvation. And he said this, with man this is impossible but with God all things are possible I'd like you to repeat that with me all things are possible with God and that's from uh, Mark 10 verse 27 there are times in our lives that extending or receiving forgiveness is humanly impossible it can't be done from our perspective, it just simply cannot be done. I would like you to meet Jean Gersbach. She is from Australia. She and her husband, some years ago, uh, decided they wanted to be missionaries. And her husband, they were sent as a family to a Tofi hospital in the Solomon Islands. They had two young daughters. And they had only been there for about four months at their new mission post. And one Sunday morning, her husband had come in, and he said to her, you know, I'm going to go down and help the guys. They're busy building and doing some construction. I'll help them digging some holes and whatnot. And he, he said, I may be late for lunch. So he breezed out. And around the midday, someone came running up to their house. And as she tells in her own words, she said, I knew immediately something had gone horribly wrong. Her husband had been brutally murdered. He had been decapitated, taken an axe and chopped his head off. I want you to watch as she shares her story, her journey toward forgiveness. Just give me a second, I need to cue this because it's quite a long clip and I want to go to a certain point in the story that we're going to pick it up at. I've just given you the background.
1: who had done it um, because nothing was going to bring him back. But grief did become like a constant companion and and there were many times when I felt totally overwhelmed. I felt I didn't think I could go on. And um, even with the girls, uh, they were obviously really, really struggling in many different ways. And sometimes I felt that I couldn't cope with my own grief, let alone the, the grief of the girls as well. About 10 months after Um, Lance was killed, a murder trial trial was held on Malaysia, And as I sat there in the makeshift courtroom, I remember looking into the eyes of the two men who were accused of murdering Lance. Video footage was shown to the court of Lance's um, mutilated body and it was really horrific. And at the time, I just remember uh, I had a sense of intense anger raise up within me. And with steely eyes, I just remember looking into the eyes of the accused and I felt hatred and I felt disdain. And I just wanted them to know just how much they had hurt us. Somehow I felt that if I just held on to those feelings, that those who had hurt us so badly um, were more likely to be punished. That didn't happen. Um, The two men were ultimately acquitted. A subsequent uh, appeal was dismissed. The case was closed unsolved. And so that left me in a position with a lot of questions, questions about God and just questions about the fairness of life. But about three and a half years after his death, I made contact with an anthropologist. And this man informed me of an impending visit to Sydney of the chairman of the Koyo Council of Chiefs. Now, this man was the most powerful man in Bush Koyo, and he had an intimate knowledge of what the goings on were in the community and up until that point i'd had no opportunity to speak to anyone about what had happened why it had happened and so with a couple of hours notice um i jumped in my car and traveled from newcastle down to to sydney to meet with him well we sat down we exchanged greetings and then we just talked about the events of what had happened on the day and uh and then I said to him that I, I just was longing to, I said I must find closure and, and I just, I'm, I'm at a point, I'm at a block, I don't know how I can find that. And he was looking down at the time and then he lifted his gaze and he looked me in the eye and he said, Jean, you have two options. He said, but really there's only one option that will have a way forward. Uh, it's not an easy option, it's a very difficult option. He said, you need to come back to Malata, meet with the accused, pray with them, and offer your total forgiveness. Well, to say that I was stunned is an understatement in the extreme. I really, at the time, thought, how dare you to expect me to come back and totally forgive them and just let them go free. They were free anyway. For me to actually enact that out, And so I was speechless, really. Um, The visit ended. I only had a limited time with him. We said goodbyes, and then I drove back home. And on the way home in the car, his words just kept going over, over and over in my mind. Pray with them. Offer your total forgiveness. And slowly it started to dawn, and I thought, you know, he is asking no more of me than what Jesus has already done. On my behalf and I thought Jesus died for my sins I didn't I I didn't deserve it I didn't earn it all I had to do was accept it and when that hit me I thought I can do no less this is this is a way out for me and suddenly I I sensed a, a feeling of peace And that was the the turning point for me. I had made an intellectual decision some years earlier, probably about 12 months after the murder, to forgive. And it was an intellectual decision and and a turning point, but my emotions were a long way behind. When this happened, I had an an overwhelming sense of, it was just like a relief and a sense of peace. I thought, it's done, it's over and um, it, it was just an overwhelming sense of it's going to be okay, mm, it's going to be okay. I wasn't able to go back to Malaysia, it, I wasn't with the young children, I, I wasn't in a position to do that, so what I did was I wrote a letter. And in that letter I offered my total forgiveness and said that I was doing that because of what Jesus had done on my behalf. And from the moment that I made that decision and, and wrote that letter, I have never once um, gone back. I haven't received a response. I know that it, I know it was received. Um, I have wondered about that, and I guess um, I would have liked to have had a response. Um, but then I've thought, well, I have done my part. That's all I can do. And um, I'm not going to let that hold me back. In terms of the whole forgiveness issue, I'm totally at peace. Um, with that compared to what it was back then, um, I wouldn't want to go back there. There was no closure and living like that is, is very stressful. It's a very difficult and you try to put on a brave face, not only for yourself, but for your workmates, your children. Whereas now I have I have an inner peace and um, that has made a huge difference to my life and to my children's lives as well. I feel now I can be a... Well, I don't need to be now, my children have grown up, but when they were little I felt in a way that I was cheating them because I wasn't a hundred percent there and I know that if you don't forgive you are in change you're trapped to the crime and then that's really was my situation but I think individually you have to come to a point and I believe for me that God led me to that point where I was willing and able to not only intellectually but emotionally forgive and remember it's one day at a time and some days you won't want to forgive but once you've made that final decision Um, you do have an inner peace that nothing can replace.
0: Jean's story, sorry. Jean's story is so incredibly powerful. You serve a God of the impossible. And with God, all things are possible. In Psalm 77, David tells us that God is a God of miracles. What happened for Jean to have this peace that passes understanding only can come from the good Lord? And as we've been able to look at that, I wonder and I ask myself, if God could do that for Jean, what is it that he can do for me? What is it that he can do for you? And God is such a wonderful God, an awesome God. You know, one of the challenges, we were just in the Middle East, and if you follow me on Facebook, we had a lot of pictures that I posted up there. And just as we were leaving, just a few days later, all of the unrest broke out again in the Gaza Strip. So this is a very fresh picture. One of the challenges of revenge is that it leaves everyone blind. So in the Middle East, where the tragic dimensions of the culture, there's this unwillingness to forgive, uh, what happens is that everybody is like, you know what, if that was happened to my grandfather and whatever, if you know, this tribe did that or whatever, I have, I, it's, I'm honor-bound to make things right again. And so cycle after cycle, they continue to try to make things right through revenge and getting even. And, and it just goes back and forth. I have to get revenge, tit for tat. The honor of my family is at stake. And sadly, tragically, it doesn't stop. And we see that very much with the ongoing unrest that is there in the Middle East. Years ago, Mahatma Gandhi, uh, who was very much involved in the liberation of India from the British uh, Empire, he made this statement I and I for I will eventually leave everyone blind. So if you continue to go from side to side and never lay down that spirit of vengeance and the desire for revenge, pretty soon everybody is blind and nobody can get anywhere in life. So it's a very powerful thought um, and one that he espoused in his own personal um, understanding. So Martin Luther King picked up on this concept from Gandhi, and he brought it here to the U.S. and the Civil Rights Movement. And in contrast to some of the leaders of his time, he recognized that nonviolent resistance would be a far more effective means for change. So in the midst of the highly charged uh, racial tensions, King led in the Civil Rights Movement by himself not endorsing retaliatory violence, Very similar concept. Well, the first biblical example of vengeance that we know and we uh, is found in the Bible is in the life of Cain. What happened? Cain got mad at God, and what did he do? He murdered his brother Abel. Tragically, and in the heat, in moment of that emotionally targeted, uh, emotionally charged moment, such a tragedy happened. And I've often, as a parent, sat and thought about what must it have been like for Adam and Eve at that moment to see the lifeless body of their son. It would have been incomprehensible for them to experience that. Uh, And yet, that's what happened. But I want to think for a moment about Joseph. I love the story of Joseph. So who wanted to kill Joseph? His brothers, exactly. Who sold him into slavery? His brothers did. His brothers persecuted him, and they misrepresented him to their father. All that Joseph suffered in Egypt, with what went on with Potiphar's wife, getting thrown into jail, forgotten, everything that he suffered, Joseph remained strong. Joseph remained true. And I love that with the story of Joseph. But in the midst of Joseph's deep pain and persecution, and his willingness to stand faithfully, in spite of the intense suffering, sorry, it is an example to us when we also suffer at the hands of our families. And I'm speaking now specifically of our church family. Sometimes things that happen in the church community are so painful, so hurtful. We need to take time to meditate on the life of Joseph as, as an example to us of how to handle things that happen in our family. So God brought a purpose for all that traumatic pain that Joseph was subjected to. God had a plan to bring good from evil. And from the depths of his suffering, God honored Joseph for his faithfulness. And he gave him a high position of trust. And he allowed him to have a leadership position that ended up saving uh, not only Egypt, but rippled down to his own family. And that day that he looks up and he sees his ten brothers there. Can you imagine? And he has the dialogue that goes along with all of that and the first trip and the second trip. And then finally when he reveals himself to to Joseph, I love that moment. It is so rich. It is so full of incredible love. And he says to his brothers, you know, You don't have to be afraid. What you intended to hurt me in Genesis, God intended for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He had this great 50-20 vision. We talk about having 20-20 vision as being perfect, but how about Genesis 50-20 as perfect, super extraordinary, God-gifted vision Genesis fifty twenty. you intended to harm me, but God intended for good. And I love this because God can take something that is horribly evil, and somehow he makes things right. And I'm not saying by this in any may- way that it's God's plan for bad things to happen. I want to be very clear in this. God did not have a plan for bad things to happen. He did not want to have us suffer like we We do, but we live in the midst of a real great controversy between the forces of evil and sin, and our fathers gave up the dominion of this world. They abdicated the right to Satan, and so in the midst of all this, it's God's work to bring good out of the evil that we find all around us. I was having this discussion one time with our youngest son. We have three boys, and our youngest son is a medical doctor, and he's just finishing his second year of surgery uh, residency, general surgery in Michigan. And we were having this conversation, and sometimes he phones us up and you know, you can tell as a young mind, he's just like burdened with the amount of horrid things that he sees in surgery and trauma surgery and, and the amount of death and crime and horrible things. And he said to me, he said, I run into this quite often in the trauma bay and ICU. People say, well, God has a plan. And, you know, the implication is that God has, God's plan somehow involved the horrendous murder or that tragic car accident or whatever took the life of that bright 20-year-old. No. He said to me so clearly, God doesn't have a plan for suffering and God isn't in control. The ownership of this world was abdicated to Satan. And then he said this to me, the whole point of the great controversy is somehow, inextricably, God can bring good out of evil. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. We serve a wonderful God, a God of the impossible, a God who can make something so beautiful out of something that is so horrible. I like what Larry Crabb says, when God's ways make no sense. The smaller stories of our lives... The story we can watch unfold around us and in us has many chapters, some pleasant, some hard, but in every moment God's larger story, visible only to the eyes of faith, is unfolding. We tremble in our smaller story as we trust that God is telling a larger story, one that eternity will prove was good. Praise God for that. You know, Paul picks up on this theme in Romans, and he says, Do not repay evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. And here Paul is quoting uh, back in the Psalm where it's, uh, David said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Paul, in the last words of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, he makes this statement. Alexander, the metal worker, did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. We don't know exactly what happened what Alexander did to Paul that would it must have made an incredible impact on Paul though for him to write these words and say hey look this painful experience really hurts but i know that god's going to repay alexander god's going to take god's going to make wrongs right so the question is how is god going to make what's wrong right how will he repay and when will he repay. Now to understand this, we must turn to the concept of the judgment in the Bible. And it is here in the Bible, the beautiful teaching of the, of the judgment, that I am so glad that I'm an Adventist. We have an understanding of the judgment that is so liberating, it is so thrilling. And I want to take a look at the biblical concept of the judgment to help understand how and when God makes all things right. So the Bible teaches there are three phases for the judgment. There's phase one of the judgment that's ongoing right now, the investigative judgment. This is a time and a place where all the inhabitants of all the other worlds that we know nothing about, but everyone that's looking on this sinful world and watching this great controversy and seeing what Satan is doing, and seeing the evil that is being done, and seeing the plan that God had, and seeing how God is dealing with his people, all of the people of the universe are watching. And now in investigative judgment, they are having a chance to look through everything, to review and to say at the end of the day, Just and true are your ways, O God. The character of God is what's on trial. And right now, the investigative judgment is all about all of those inhabitants having, of all the other worlds, having a chance to be assured that any questions they have of God's character and how he has dealt with sin and Satan can be forever finalized in their minds. Now then, the second phase of the judgment happens after the second coming when the rewards are given out. Now, we know what those rewards are. He'll say to you, where have I done this? And you enter thou into uh, my well-done, thou good and faithful servant, or, you know, I don't know you, whatever. So the rewards are given out. Now, during the millennium, and how long is the millennium? The Bible teaches us it is a thousand years during the one thousand years we the righteous will have a chance to do that same investigation the bible tells us the books will be open we will be able to sit down we will be able to get answers for everything that we have questions for now we will go through and see how god has dealt with situation after situation And at the end of the thousand years, it will be our turn to say, righteous and true are your ways, O God. And for us to be satisfied that what God has done is just and fair. So in the thousand years, the righteous have the chance to be able to examine God's character and his dealings with everyone that has lived on this earth. I love this doctrine. In fact, I have to say in the last few years, the Millennium Doctrine has become perhaps one of my favorite in the Bible of our doctrines. Because, you know, now Jesus asks us to walk by faith. And sometimes that's just so hard when we're hurting and we're full of pain. But he promises us that we will, if we'll just walk by faith, we will have the opportunity to have an answer for every single question. Why my little friend died of cancer at five years old? Why, I was speaking to somebody today at breakfast, Her husband died of terrible brain cancer within two months. Why terrible accidents happen? Why was I so badly hurt by someone who was maybe in the church? Why, 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 why? Whatever the list is, God will give us the time, and we will be able to sit down and say jesus what really happened what really went on i praise god for this this is so exciting for me praise god for the bible truths praise god for the beauty of that time when we will know without a shadow of a doubt that how god has chosen to handle not only our lives but the lives of those whom we love has been just and fair and i thank god for that then the final phase of the judgment, the third uh, phase at the end of the thousand years, this is when all of the wicked will come to recognize that God has been indeed fair and just to them too. Even though they have chosen to miss out on loving Jesus and accepting the gift of salvation, they will bow their knee and say, just and true are your ways, trust and fair. So, you know, I am thrilled that we not only are invited to allow Jesus to handle the vengeance, but we know very clearly how and when God is going to repay. And I am grateful for that. And all I can say is thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I have had my moments of deep pain. I've been deeply hurt by the choices of others and i've suffered and i'll be very candid the actions of other people particularly people perhaps that you know better have been extremely hurtful to me and one day in the midst of my ranting and raving to brad <laughs> i was saying but it's not fair somebody needs to pay he said quietly to me this is candace jesus Ouch. exactly, Cindy. It really hit me then. Who am I to seek justice for the wrongs that others have done to me? Jesus paid it all. He paid for my sins, and yes, he paid for the sins of the individuals who have hurt me so badly. The gift of forgiveness is just as much for them as it is for me. Jesus paid it all, and I thank Jesus for that. So we serve the God of the impossible, and he is, he is with us through two very specific ways. The God of the impossible loved. He loved so much that in the death of Jesus, he grants us the gift of forgiveness. That's number one. Number two, the God of the impossible provides the possibility for me to extend forgiveness to others. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. I'm reminded of the, of the song, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Praise God for the God of the impossible. How thankful I am. Peter picks up this whole concept in Second Peter. There's a passage where he talks about and invites us to live as free men and women. And I quote now from Peter and this is uh, verses 16 and 17 through 19. Do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? So if I have done something wrong, then I deserve kind of, you know, I deserve the consequences, don't I? But, Peter goes on, But if you suffer for doing good, and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And then verse 23, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Even Jesus had to trust his Father for justice. Praise God for that, and he gives us an example, and we have to do exactly the same. Indeed, he paid it all. God will make all things right. He does have a plan. He is the God of the impossible, and he paid it all. You know, I want to just briefly think back to ancient times. When the Israelites had uh, had sinned, what did they have to do? They had to take their little precious lamb, and they had to go and go through that whole system of the sacrifice that's outlined in the sanctuary service. And the Bible at that time also taught how they were to make restitution. Not only did they have to pay back, but they had to pay back with interest, 20% interest. So here we see an example that... Not only does Jesus pay for it, he pays back with interest, too. And I thank God for that. Jesus paid it all for those who have hurt me. He's paid it all for those who refuse to forgive me. And he paid it all. I thank God for that. I am so thankful to Jesus. Brad and I have been going to South Africa for over 20 years. We started in 1997 our family there, our three boys, and 90 pounds of school books and videos and music instruments for the very first satellite uh, event in Africa. We were coordinating that event. And we fell in love with South Africa. And then through the developments of Hope Channel, many, many, many times we returned to South Africa. And last summer we happened to be in South Africa with some very dear friends. And we took them the, the occasion to go to the Nelson Mandela Plaza where um, we had a lovely breakfast together. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are real familiar with the story of Nelson Mandela, but uh, he was the first president that brought, um, brought justice to the country of South Africa, and he suffered greatly for that. He was imprisoned uh, for 27 years, and I want to just read to you um, what his prison time was like. Um, he, was, he landed in Robben Island, which is a tiny little island that you can actually see from the coast of Cape Town in South Africa. Um, he was confined to a small cell, the floor, his bed, a bucket for a toilet. He was forced to do hard labor in a quarry. He was allowed one visitor a year for 30 minutes. And he could write and receive one letter every six months. Talk about terrible. Oh, my goodness. But through his intelligence, his charm, and his dignified defiance, Nelson survived those years. And when he came out of prison, he had a huge choice. And in the book, Long Walk to Freedom, which is an incredible read, our whole family read it uh, when we were there the first time in South Africa. It's a fascinating read. He said this, As I walked out the door toward the gate that would lead to my freedom, I knew if I didn't leave my bitterness and hatred behind, I'd still be in prison. Those are powerful words. He'd still be in prison. And you know, Nelson Mandela chose to do four specific things that were very visual to others in his willingness to live and embrace forgiveness. Um, The first thing he did was invite one of his former jailers to a dinner marking the 20th anniversary of his release from prison. He invited a prison guard to his inauguration ceremony in South Africa. So there on the front row with his family was was a former prison guard. He had lunch with the man who tried to kill him. Um, This man had prosecuted him and wanted him dead in 1963. He demanded the death penalty, and years and years later, 1995, Mandela invited this man to dinner, and they enjoyed a meal together. It's pretty bold, isn't it? And then, fourthly, this was very visual. He donned the Springbok uh, rugby jersey, Springbok, sorry, rugby jersey, in 1995 at the World Cup. Now, you need to understand the Springboks were the white South African uh, football team. Rugby team, and if anything that black a Amer- uh, black Africans hated in South Africa was that team, and they were never properly allowed to participate in the games to watch what was going on, and when Nelson Mandela stepped out at the World Cup wearing the Springbok jersey, it was electric, and it made a statement that ripples around the world. I forgive. I choose to forgive. And it was very, very powerful. So for the next few minutes, I would like to delve into what is not forgiveness and what is forgiveness. Because there are some misconceptions out there. And I admit, my, I myself have not always clearly understand, understood it. And I have been appreciated learning some of these principles myself. And some of these concepts I'm taking from Dick, Dr. Dick Tibbett's uh, Forgive to Live material. And by the way, that video I showed from Australia is, uh, I'm playing that courtesy of um, the South Pacific Division, who've asked us to share those stories around the world, those forgiveness stories, as part of the Forgive to Live um, program that they're initiating in their part of the world. First of all, forgiveness is not forgetting, okay? Forgiveness is not amnesia. To truly forgive someone does not necessarily mean you forget what has happened or what has been done or the incident that took place. Some people may uh, mistakenly believe that they must not have forgiven because they still remember the wrong that had been done to them. In some cases, even though we forgive, we may still carry the scars of that experience. The reminder of that until Jesus gives us a new body and a new mind. So forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not forgetting. Forgiveness is not excusing another's hurtful actions. Forgiveness never makes a wrong right. So just because something wrong has happened and I've said I'm forgiven, it doesn't mean the wrong is now right. Not at all. It's just the opposite. Opposite, Excuse me forgiveness is necessary only when a wrong has occurred moving on forgiveness does not negate restitution the fact that someone has taken something away from you does not mean that you give up your right for recompense there are times that it's necessary for there to be something even legally that needs to be done to uh to help you recapture what you've lost but There's a caution to that because you never fully recover everything that is lost. Forgiveness does not require reconciliation. It would be really nice if forgiveness always resolved all issues and brought the two parties back together. But forgiveness does not always require restitution. Why? Because it takes two parties to reconcile. And even if, in all your heart, you've forgiven and you want and desire and pray for reconciliation, it doesn't necessarily mean that the other party wants to play that same game and get on the same page with you. And you have to recognize that 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 doesn't mean you haven't forgiven. Yes, I've forgiven, but restitution and I mean, sorry, reconciliation takes two parties, and we have to remember that forgiveness is not a one time act. In other words, it's a process that takes place over and over. It takes repeated nurture to grow forgiveness in your heart. So yes, you can say forgiveness, you can mean it and believe it, but you know what? When triggers happen, you may have to remind yourself that you've forgiven. And that's okay. That is okay to do that. Forgiveness is not a one-time act. So exactly what is forgiveness? So I'm going to begin with the concept of reframing is reframing your story of hurt, your grievance story, what has happened to you, placing your hurtful events in a broader context than your current point of view. Now, I want you to take a close look at the mountains in this picture. These are Canadian mountains. This is Lake Louise, up near where I come from. But do you notice how much darkness there is around the outer part of the picture? Now, I want to take another look of those mountains in this picture. It's the same picture. But it's been reframed. I simply reframed it. And there's no more blackness, is there? Now the focus is on the mountains. And that's so beautiful. And that same process can we can do. We can reframe our anger and our hurt from the past with the goal of recovering our own personal worth in the present and revitalizing our purpose and hopes for the future. So reframing is number one. Number two, remembering. Forgiveness is remembering in a different way. It's remembering without anger. It's remembering that the God of the impossible will make everything right in his time. So forgiveness is remembering in a different way. Sometimes the hardest person to forget is yourself. Sometimes we need to let ourselves off the hook for what has been done to us. Sometimes we just simply need to stop singing that song, I should have, I could have, I would have, whatever. We've got to just say, you know what, I could have done that, should have done that, but thank God, I'm not, they don't have to look at the past, God's interested in where I'm going. So we need to forgive ourselves. Simply let ourselves off the hook. Forgiveness is a gift. You give to yourself to release you from the chains of what others have done to you. It's a statement that I haven't found a source for, but it's so powerful. Forgiveness is a choice. Forgiveness is my choice. Remember the crossword, crossroads. Choice is our responsibility. We take no responsibility for the actions of others. To forgive is our choice alone. No one can force us. No one can do it for us. We can do it ourselves. And then very quickly, there are 10 principles of forgiveness that I found to be very helpful. The first one, life is not fair. And others play by a different set of rules than you do. The rules of life are different for everyone. What I think is a gross error from my background, from my culture, from my life commandments that I was raised with, may be totally okay for someone else. So I have to remember that I have to be honest and realize that they may not even think that they've done anything wrong. They have no guilt because they didn't do anything wrong, even though I have been terribly hurt from it. So I have to accept that God is working in all of our lives. In the meantime, I've got to be true to myself. And play the game of life authentically, authentically, (laughs) sorry, you know what I mean, by the rules I know. So that's what I have to do. Life isn't fair, and others play by a different set of rules. Stop blaming others for your circumstances. (laughs) My circumstances are mine. Perhaps I didn't have a lot of choice for my circumstances, but I can choose. i will allow those circumstances to affect me i can choose that and so don't blame other people for that understand you cannot change the person who hurts you but you can change yourself acknowledge the hurt and the anger that some unpleasant event has caused you it is okay to say i am feeling hurt i feel disrespected whatever it is Sit down, pray about it, put a name to it. It's okay to say, to acknowledge the anger and hurt. That's part of the steps toward forgiveness. Then reframing your story of hurt by placing that hurtful event in a broader context than your current point of view. Number six, recognize that only you can make the choice to forgive. Even though you've been very, very hurt, and as much as you're willing to extend forgiveness to someone who's hurt you, you may never experience that reconciliation. It takes two, you're responsible only for your choice. There's a saying, hurt people hurt people. Hurting people will often lash out, they'll belittle, or sarcastically make remarks that are, kind of have a two-edged sword. Why? Because they have issues themselves that they've not addressed, and they're hurting themselves. So we can't look to the one who has hurt us as the one with the power we have to, we have the power of choice. So we need to shift our view, number seven, of the offender as the one with all the power to seeing that person as weak and acting out of their own unresolved hurts and struggles. We need to intentionally move from victim to victor as if we begin to tap into our inner strengths and ability. Praise God for the power that comes through Jesus Christ. He gives us all power. He is the God of the impossible. He can help us do something. We need to focus on victory, not on being a victim. And that can help us as we move toward forgiveness. Understanding forgiveness will take time and cannot be rushed. This is important to remember. Forgiveness takes time. And some days, when you think you've forgotten and forgiven Well, you may not have forgotten, but you've forgiven. It comes back. And you just have to allow yourself to be willing to forgive again and realize that that time doesn't heal everything, but time lessens that hurt. It has a way of doing doing that. The past doesn't necessarily taint the present, and the present doesn't diminish the past. Time is the medium. Time is a track, and we travel that track. So take time to heal. And finally, take responsibility for your life and your future. And there's no better time than to start today. So get started on that track. Whatever it is that you know the Holy Spirit is talking to you about, take responsibility. It's time now to start that. So there are three phases of forgiveness. Um, very quickly, how I handle the memories of painful things said and done to me in the past, how I overcome the negative emotions I feel right now is phase two. Phase three... How I Free Myself from a Hurtful Past to Achieve My Desired Future. I have uh, very much enjoyed the story of Edith Eva Eger. She is a Holocaust survivor. She has a very powerful book. It's called The Choice Embrace the Impossible. If you have a chance to read it, I really recommend it. She went through a horrific experience. She lost both of her parents the same day, in uh, Auschwitz. And she and her sister survived. I mean, barely survived. They were a sack of bones laying under corpses and managed to only stick up a hand at the very end when the Americans liberated Auschwitz. And she went through horrible experiences recovering from all of that. She ended up going through, she was 16 years old when she was put uh, into the concentration camp. She ended up Going through and getting her college degree later on, she was in her 30s. She followed through with a master's. She ended up getting a PhD. And she has some very profound concepts of choice in regards to forgiveness. We want so much to understand the truth. We want to be accountable for our mistakes. We want honesty about our lives. We want reasons, explanations. We want our lives to make sense. How many times? When you have journeyed through pain and, and needing to confront forgiveness, you've asked why, what did I do wrong? If only I could understand, maybe it, this wouldn't happen again. Have you ever been there? Well, I certainly have. But to ask why, Dr. Eva says, is to stay in the past, to keep company with our guilt and regret. We cannot control other people, and we cannot control the past. She goes on here to say in her book, war from diminishing, I think that's a mistake, far should be from diminishing pain. Whatever we deny ourselves, the opportunity to accept becomes as inescapable as brick walls and steel bars. When we don't allow ourselves to grieve our losses, wounds, and disappointments, we are doomed to keep reliving them over and over and over again. Freedom means we muster the courage to dismantle the prison, brick by brick. She goes on to say, freedom lies in embracing what happened. So it's not so much what the whole big picture, all the disappointments and everything else. We are, If we keep reliving them, we cannot move ahead. And I found that to be very, very, very helpful. When we forgive, this is by Lewis Speeck, we set a prisoner free and then discover that that person we set free was us. Yes, so true. Now, there's four phases to this forgiveness cycle. We hurt, we're mad, we're angry, we hate, we heal, and then we come together. And that coming together may only be with Jesus. It may not be with the other party like we want. Sometimes it is. Praise God for when reconciliation can happen between two parties. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. If you want to live, at some point you must choose to forgive. And this is again from Dr. Dick Tibbetts. There are four promises Christians make when they forgive. And this is from Ken Sand, the CEO of Peacemakers. And he summarizes it like this. I promise I will not dwell on this this incident. I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I will not talk to others about this incident. I will not let this incident between us hinder our personal relationship. Pretty powerful. These are promises Christians make when they forgive. And once again, back to that choice, we have the choice. Now just really, really quick, fold your hands together like this. Look for a minute. Which thumb is on the top? It's, uh, it's OK. How many of it is on the left? OK. How many is on the right? Almost half, not quite, maybe 40, 60. OK, now fold your hands again, but consciously do it the other way. It feels strange, exactly. It feels very, very strange. That's because habits are habits. We have folded our hands a certain way, probably from when mommy taught us to pray when we were little. My point being is that we can consciously make the choice to change, even if it's awkward, even if it's awkward to forgive. We can make that choice. We just have to consciously do it. And, and that is part of this whole walk of choice. Gratitude is the best attitude. You know, there's so many beautiful praise promises, and there's the whole concept of being thankful can change your outlook. When you are struggling with forgiveness, I know this for myself. Um, when I was a young pastor's wife, a young evangelist's wife, we were living in Switzerland. My husband um, was very busy, he traveled a lot, and I was left alone with first one, and then two, and then three little boys. And it was not easy, there were tough times. And I remember at times, um, you know, saying, okay, I need to be thankful because right now I'm feeling sorry for myself. I'm having a major pity party. And I would start like, I'm thankful I have hair. I'm I'm not a chemotherapy patient. I'm thankful I can hear. I'm thankful I can see. And I would literally have to remind myself of the simple things that I take for granted that I was thankful for because gratitude makes a huge difference in your attitude. And I had one experience that probably you know, sealed this in my mind. I was pregnant with our third son and my husband had a trip to Oporto, Portugal. And it's quite a distance from there in Switzerland where we were living at the time. And he said, you know, honey, I have enough time. Why don't we just pack the kids in the car and you just come with me? I've been gone so much. And so we packed up the kids and, and we had a station wagon and we just went off on our way. And I I refer to this trip as a trip of the great bar because I was in morning sickness with my third pregnancy and literally nauseated and sick all the time and finally got to the point that I couldn't even get out of the car. I would just open my door and then wash my face off and drink a little water and we'd keep on going. It was a crazy trip. But when we got to Portugal, we were staying at the academy there, um, and Brad had his meetings with all the pastors and the administrators and whatever, and the kids and I were in the um, one of the dorm rooms, and the kids got sick. The two boys got a bad flu. So I've got morning sickness on top of two kids with fevers and, you know, also sick. I mean, it was a mess. <laughs> and about day three, I'm starting to, you know, kind of feel very cooped up. And Brad's finished his meeting. So he said to me, here's the keys to the car. Let me watch the boys. Why don't you go and just drive around a little bit around the academy here and just see what you can see and he knows I love to just explore. So I jumped at the opportunity and I jump in the car and I go tootling off down the backcountry roads and then I just, you know, i had been thinking the last couple of days, I'm really hungry for eggs. I would just love to eat some eggs. You know, I don't know why it never dawned on me to just go to the kitchen and ask the, the cook at the, at the cafeteria to cook me some eggs. But anyway, I said, you know, if I could find some eggs, I bet I could take them to the cafeteria and have them cook me some eggs. So I see this little tiny market, and I pull over, and you know now it's getting to be close to supper time, and the market is busy. There's people coming and going. And so I park my car, and I get out, and I move toward the entrance of this small little store. And in Portugal, um, they have the practice, at least back then, and this is in the late 80s, um, where they would hang the raw carcasses of the meat you know everything from a rabbit to a cow and a pig or whatever they would be you know just skinned and hanging there and it didn't smell very good plus they love cod fish that's dried, and it has a very strong flavor so i'm literally like this to get myself into the door of the store but i'm like i've come this far i'm going to get those eggs so i'm walking around the store and i'm looking for eggs and i can't see eggs anywhere And I'm getting frustrated. I'm thinking, surely the Portuguese eat eggs. (laughs) And finally, I'm like, okay, I cannot go back to the campus without eggs. And so I looked around, and I looked, and I saw a man that looked kind of friendly at the back. And I approached him, and I asked him in English. And he had eggs. Well, he didn't speak any English, so we didn't get very far with that. I don't speak any Portuguese, and I didn't have a dictionary along or anything. So being a farm girl, what did I do? Up my hands, I go. Well, he started laughing. He slapped his his thigh and he just everybody in the whole store stopped. Here I'm standing head and shoulders above all these special people and there's this crazy white woman making an idiot of herself, you know. And so anyways, he showed me the eggs. There they were in a big crate, in a cart, in a wooden crate. I'd never seen eggs like that. So I bought my eggs. I got out of there, and I'm rushing to the car, and I have two so strong emotions. I'm happy, and I'm laughing, thinking this is the funniest thing I've ever done in my life. On the other hand, I'm thinking, you know, this is crazy. Here I'm a poor missionary wife. I have to make an utter fool of myself to get what my body needs. So I have these two complete very vibrant emotions going on. I get back to the campus with my little bag of eggs, and I said, you will never believe what I just did. <laughs> but you know, it was a great experience, because as I look back on that, I realize that you, you can always look at one side or the other. Happiness is a choice. You can always choose to be grateful. And by living the gratitude we don't necessarily feel, we can begin to feel the gratitude that we live. Praise God for that. Gratitude can turn a meal into a feast, a house into a home, a stranger into a friend. Gratitude makes sense of our past, brings peace for today, and creates a vision for tomorrow. By Melody Beattie. Gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It turns what we have into enough and more. It turns denial into... Into acceptance, acceptance, chaos to order, confusion to clarity. Praise God for gratitude. Gratitude is something we can embrace each and every day. We have that choice to be so thankful for all of our blessings, and I'm thankful enough that we can unpack forgiveness too. Our past does not define our future, and we can accept the gift of forgiveness. Praise God for that. Thank you so much for being a great audience. I'd like to invite you to stand as we have prayer together. Our dear, loving Heavenly Father, how grateful we are that you are the God of the impossible. And Lord, that you take the impossible situations in our lives and you can do something. You can give us a miracle. You can give us the miracle of forgiveness, not only for the sins that we have done, but giving us the gift to be able to forgive others. Lord, we praise you for that. Lord, we thank you so much for the example that you've given us. And may we ever look to you, our dear friend Jesus, as our guide and as our leader and as our helper, as our comforter, I pray in a powerful...